Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing the water crisis facing the people of Jackson, Mississippi. Also going to be talking about the serious flooding that's been happening inside Pakistan and going to be talking about the ongoing and intensifying campaign of anti-transgender violence here in the United States. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Jasmine Riquez, Queer and Trans Justice Project Director of the Immigrant Alliance for Justice and Equity of Mississippi, and Basil Jupiter, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Mississippi. Jess, Basil, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. No problem, no problem. Absolutely. And uh, Jess Basil, of course, a, a water crisis that uh, was already ongoing in the city of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, has intensified as I believe as of now, the residents of Jackson have uh, no running waters. I believe hospitals are being left without air conditioning, with schools being moved online. Uh, uh, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves uh, recently announced that the main water treatment facility in Jackson began failing around Monday, which means that it couldn't produce enough water for all of the critical needs that it's used for. Now, uh, a state of emergency has been declared by Governor Reeds, which uh, activated the Mississippi uh, National Guard uh, and things like this. And so I feel like there's a whole backdrop leading up to this issue. This is not sort of uh, something that happened overnight with you, uh, if you will, with the water system in Jackson having been, you you know, uh, under duress, I think, uh, for quite some time. And so I want to start with you, Jess, and just get some of your top line thoughts of uh, how things have been playing out in Jackson since this has happened. I mean, wh- what have you been seeing on the ground? What has the response been like? Uh, how have things been unfolding uh, since this happened? Well, we have uh, families that well, we'll start with the flooding. Uh, our uh, We have some families that have lost everything in the floods and then it's it's also like a uh, hundred degrees outside, and people are left without electricity, without water. Um, we have uh, folks that are uh, needing um, baby food and baby electrolytes because their kids aren't getting enough to drink, and it's it's just really bad right now. Um, we uh we're on the ground uh trying to give out as much water as we can um we're taking in donations for buying more water um we're trying to think of ways to be more sustainable with the water and like not not using plastic bottles but trying to be more sustainable um but yeah it, it's a crisis and it's a crisis that it, it this is probably Since I've been working with my organization the second time in like a year or so that that we've had a water crisis. Um, So it's it's uh, there's a history of this. And, yeah, I'm just appalled at my state right now. 
Yeah, definitely. And you know, Basil, I was actually struck when I read that um, there was a water distribution event that was held at Hawkins Field Airport in Jackson, Mississippi, where residents were actually turned away because the site ran out of its 700 cases of water in only two hours. And I feel like that gives just just a little idea about uh, what conditions are like there. And uh, CNN actually quoted Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba saying, quote, I have said on multiple occasions that it's not a matter of if our system would fail, but a matter of when our system would fail. And he goes on to say that the city has been, quote, going at it alone for the better part of two years as it concerns this water issue. Now, reportedly, Governor Reeves is saying that the state would uh, split the cost of these emergency fares with the city. But according to Mayor Lumumba, this would uh, bring a price tag of about two billion dollars to fully repair and replace this uh, outdated system. And of course, that's money that uh, the city just doesn't have, saying, quote, we don't have the funds in order to deal with 30 years of neglect. And so I have to ask, Basil, I mean, from your perspective, why is it that something as basic and fundamental as clean water in a functioning water system, why has that been allowed to go for so long unaddressed in the city of Jackson from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, even I honestly, the fact that, you know what I'm saying, like um, this has been a, a two-year crisis is honestly charitable because it's honestly been, I mean, because Jackson has had situations like this happening since 1989. Um, you know, these, these problems are very long-standing. It's a symptom of a national issue as well of the fact that um, in the 1970s, is around 30% of city municipal water was federally funded. Now that's, you know, like 0.1%. There's very little funding going towards um, water in Jackson at the federal level. And whatever federal funds that do come, there's just a case back in, uh, I believe, March, where the state government received $47 million that's supposed to go to Jackson. I believe that they only got, uh, let me see, uh, yeah, they only got $3 million of that $47 million to fix, you know, Jackson's filling water system. So, I mean, you know, the, you know, Jackson's city leadership has been saying for years that they, you know, they need the federal funding, you know, federal and state funding to fix this water system. Um, and the money is there. <laughs> The money is definitely there, but the money is not not enough money is being sent, and where it is being sent has been blocked by our state government. So it's just amazing when you know, like uh, when Tate Reese does not you know invite the mayor, you know, to his press conferences. When um, you know the governor Tate Reeves, um, you know, talks as if he is handling the situation. When now he's talking about Jackson covering half the cost. So now we're in a situation where either um, Jackson is going to be spending, have to spend money, more money than it actually has, or the city of Jackson, we're, we're going to still be in a situation where we're still not going to be getting enough funding uh, for the city of Jackson because, you know, Jackson can't pay that money because Jackson has very little sources of revenue. 
many of the sources of revenue in Jackson are actually owned by the state of Mississippi, were acquired by a state of Mississippi. So yeah, it's a very, it's a very, um, you know, it's a very, it's a very, uh, you know, white supremacist uh, relationship between you know this uh, city and you know the majority white state government. Yeah, for sure. And on that note, Jess, that's actually what I wanted to ask about next, because, you know, Jackson, uh, Mississippi is a very heavily uh, a black city and uh, also, you know, not a wealthy place to say the very least. A lot of poor and working class people, which I'm sure uh, impacts the population there in a number of ways. But I mean, given uh, uh, the politics and orientation of uh, the state government, I can't help but wonder if these different race and class dynamics are perhaps having an impact on uh, how uh, the response to this water crisis is rolling out. But how do you see uh, those dynamics possibly factoring in to what we're seeing unfold in Jackson right now as it regards this water crisis? Oh, definitely. Um, the folks that are most impacted are black working class folks in in Jackson, in um, South Jackson and West Jackson. Um but uh, I primarily work with uh, Latinx immigrant folks, and uh, we're seeing they're they're also working class folks, and uh, we're seeing that um, they're they're in most need right now for getting water and uh, resources. So it's it's just a lot a lot right now. I I don't know like uh, how else I can explain it, but. Um, it's Jackson. Jackson has experienced a lot of white flight, and it's uh, has very rich neighboring uh, cities. And so, the divestment there is—it's not like Basil was saying. It's not city leadership that that is um, that has mismanaged this. It's state leadership. It's our primarily white white-led Republican state leadership that has caused this. And um, it, it's impacting folks of color mostly, um, folks of color, working-class folks, poor folks. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, Basil, I feel like uh, Jess said a lot when she uses the word divestment. And, you know, not that long ago, uh, we had you on the show, speaking of uh, the Mississippi state government, where it was found that, you know, $94 million were uh, basically stolen from um, the uh, state uh, welfare uh, uh, funding and just sort of, you know, completely misspent, misappropriated, uh, funneled away for, for favors and all sorts of things. And so I just feel like understanding the, the political context of Mississippi as a state, including uh, this dynamic between the governor of Mississippi, the mayorship of uh, Jackson in uh, particular. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about someone in Tate Reeves who, who literally has shown a willingness to steal from the poor people of Mississippi. And as such, I think it paints perhaps a less than a, a rosy picture of how things could play out as it regards this water crisis. You know what I mean? Definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, in the relationship between the city and state is, you know, it, it's very much like, you know, a characterization by the state, you know, in the same way, you know, like after, you know, so the war, you saw black leadership for the first time, you know, it's, it's, it's very similar of, you know, oh, this is terrible, inadequate leadership, you know, 
et cetera, et cetera. And not to say that, like, you know, like this, you know, state government is, you know, perfect or anything like that. But this, but to, you know, point to the state leadership and say, this is, yeah, an extremely racist leadership that has continually divested, um, as Jess said, and underdeveloped Jackson for decades, especially South and West Jackson, and then saying, and this is why we need more police, you know, and then saying, um, and saying, well, of course, the state leadership can't handle this water crisis, or no, of course, the city leadership can't handle the water crisis that the state leadership has basically caused by not investing in Jackson for literally decades. And, you know, the first time that this happened in the 80s is when the money should have come. But the, you know, the, um, you know, they just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. It's like, you know, you have a car that keeps having problems. You keep ignoring it. Well, you know, it's going to get more expensive the more you ignore it. Right. (laughs) So it's, so it's, you know, that same phenomena of the, yeah, the state leadership has just continually ignored the problem. And now they're now, just now they're saying they're going to do something. But of course, as, as you know, national tension um, wanes, um, if national tension wanes, then, you know, it's probably going to be they're not going to do enough. Yeah. And, you know, on this note about divestment, Jess, I mean, just a moment ago, you talked about how um, Jackson has uh, experienced this white flight and you sort of raised the issue of uh, uh, how this impacts uh, uh, immigrant communities. And, and I was hoping you could say more about how this underdevelopment impacts immigrant communities in a city uh, like Jackson that, you know, can make an issue like this water crisis, you know, uh, perhaps intensify an already quite difficult situation for a lot of people there yeah it's it's been really bad because a lot of the resources and a lot of the news that comes out about um like where to get water like what's happening is all in english and a lot of our folks uh are spanish speakers some are not even spanish speakers so um a lot of uh a lot of this gets missed by our community and they are not aware of like where to pick up water or where they can get these resources at but uh i work like i said i work for an immigrant uh rights organization called the immigrant alliance for justice and equity and we have a building where we're distributing water um and also other resources like um like baby food and uh, formula and things like that. Um, but there, there is a language barrier where like emergencies like this are like the state fails to, to think about our community, um, our Spanish speaking community, our non-English speaking communities. And, um, there, there's not even an accurate count of how many uh, Hispanic, Latinx, Latino folks there are in Jackson or in the state. But um, we've been doing our best to keep up with the demand of like how much water, um, how much water we can give out. But uh, one of the things that the state is doing is um, since it's a uh, an emergency now, like it's been declared an emergency. Um, the state, 
uh, what do you call them? The National Guard is giving out water. Um, our communities are very much afraid of folks in uniforms. Um, and so, like, even something that could be, like, positive, like, oh, they're giving out more water, but who who is giving out the water, and are they approachable by folks that um, are undocumented or, like, um, folks that are in a position where they would – they would not normally come up to like a an, a uniformed person. So there's there's a lot of different layers going on, um, and it's we're we're dealing with it the best we can. Uh, we we believe in community first, and so um, we have community members giving out water to other community members. It's it's not a case where folks are having to face national guard just to get some water. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, Basil, in thinking about the water crisis in Mississippi and other water crises that we see in cities like Flint, Michigan, which has also been grappling with unclean water, poisonous water, frankly, for years at this point. I mean, I feel like we have to ask the question, I mean, how is this even possible in such a wealthy and powerful nation like the United States, which seems to generate so much wealth, but there are just so many people, literally millions, that are are having issues accessing the necessities of life and in cases like Jackson and Flint and other places don't even have ready access to water, which is literally fundamental for life itself. And so it seems to me that um, uh, the capitalist system that sort of undergirds um, this uh, this this country, uh, the United States, of course, as we know it, seems to be uh, the real culprit out of which we get the Tate Reeves of the world and so many uh other issues plaguing not only the people of Mississippi, uh, but uh, poor working and oppressed people all across this country. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's at the root of the capitalist system because, I mean, you know, I mean, you see the fact, you know, as mentioned earlier, that, you know, there, there used to be more funding for water um, in, in Jackson. There used to be more funding for water, period, um, like all around the United States. Um, that has been greatly greatly reduced over the years and it it really shows like where the priorities are because at the same time you know you see more investment in prisons incarceration rate rising you see more investment in police you see more investment in the military budget i mean this you know like um the same the same time period where i mean leading up to you know um, this war, this war crisis. Uh, you still have a war crisis of um, constant boy water notices throughout the summer, and people's water bills rising to as much as thirteen hundred dollars for some homeowners. Um, during the same time, you know, you see, you know, you know, like a fifty-four billion in aid sent to Ukraine over six months. You see record profits during inflation like companies are making more money now than they're making during the 50s you know um you're seeing um recently um this uh i believe 30 billion dollar investment in police um recently announced by the Biden administration putting 100,000 more cops on the street um uh, for public safety as just mentioned 
This is, you know, this, this doesn't feel safe to a lot of working class people, including un- undocumented people, including many of the people of Jackson um, overall. So it seems that the priorities of the state right now are locking people up, giving money to weapons companies, um, you know, putting more cops on the street to regulate people um, instead of providing clean drinking water. I mean, if they really were um, concerned about safety, I mean, the first priority should be water because that is literally um, that's literally the motor of life. Um, that is literally um, unsafe water can lead to um, people, you know, for many um, mental illnesses um, that can contribute to high crime because often these things go unaddressed because, again, no investment in Jackson, no investment in Jackson's mental health infrastructure. So we just have all these factors showing how the capitalist system has really disadvantaged Jackson to such a great degree. And this is exacerbated by a state leadership that is an extremely racist and does not care about the people of Jackson at all. Definitely. Well, Jess, Basil, we thank you both so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the devastating floods that have hit Pakistan. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by journalist Wakas Ahmed. Wakas, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me, John. Absolutely. And Walkers, we had you on the show just last week discussing the political crisis that's been happening inside Pakistan. But uh, the situation there seems to have been compounded uh, by a climate crisis with just an incredible uh, flooding that Pakistan has experienced. I mean, reports are saying that a third of the country is underwater, uh, uh, taking the lives of more than a thousand people with an estimated uh, 10 billion dollars of damage being done in uh, as a result of what's being described as a monster monsoon. And I'm not even really sure where to begin uh, with this, Walkus. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what what I suppose what was sort of the uh, I'm wondering how does this you think exacerbate or impact sort of the broader issues that we've been seeing inside Pakistan? Because I just can't imagine that it's uh, it's making things any better. Yeah, all, all of these things get compounded, and they're all dependent on each other. If Pakistan had a better political system, if Pakistan had better governance, these floods would not be this destructive, uh, and people would not be uh, on their own to rescue each other instead of like the government machinery would have been there. So uh, th- that's how like everything gets connected in a way that uh, 
Pakistan is now facing climate change, and Pakistan knows this. This has been known for for a while now that Pakistan is extremely vulnerable to climate change. Pakistan has over seven thousand glaciers that are melting very fast as the climate heats up. So what is going to happen is these floods are going to get extreme every year. Last time we had floods like this was in 2010, and those floods were also unprecedented. We never had floods like that, like the ones in 2010. In 2010, there was similar destruction that we have now, and uh, interestingly, they were on, in the same places. All the places, all the cities that are now flooded were were the same cities that were flooded in 2010. So from 2010 to now 2022. Pakistani government does has not made any progress uh, to mitigate the effects of flood. Instead, in 2022, we find themselves uh, or them even less prepared than they were at that time. Right now, the government was so slow to respond to these floods in a way that this massive destruction has been caused by the slow response of the government that was involved that was preoccupied with the politics. And preoccupied with kidnapping uh, critics and uh, activists, and uh, torturing them that they did not even consider that the floods were coming. The Met Office of Pakistan said four months ago that there are going to be massive monsoon rains in Pakistan this year, and uh, the National Disaster Management Authority did not do anything. There was no communication from the center. To different provinces and to different city uh, districts, and uh, Pakistan has a massive uh, canal system. Those that canal system has to be managed in floods. You know, to instead of uh, getting cities and like settled areas flooded, they can they can flood uh, uh, land. But those canal systems and irrigation system were found really lacking when people uh, did not know which gates to open and which to not. So it's uh, not just climate change; it is, it is also bad governance and mismanagement from the Pakistani government. Yeah, and you know, I was also reading reports, Waka, saying that um, the International Monetary Fund uh, has approved a bailout for Pakistan uh, uh, with an agreement that would provide four billion dollars for the current fiscal year. Excuse me, which will uh, also unlock a further thirty-three billion dollars in additional financing for the country, which I believe was already at risk on defaulting on its uh, uh, repayments of foreign debt. And so, I'm wondering how you see this piece uh, uh, sort of impacting the economic situation inside uh, Pakistan uh, uh, as we, you know, sort of unpack these uh, sort of cascading and interlocking uh, tragedies and crises happening there right now. So the IMF really. Uh, says like whenever IMF deal happens with Pakistan, and whenever IMF lends some money to any country, they take some promises from that government from that country, and those are that they will increase their revenue and they will decrease their cost. So for the government of Pakistan to increase their revenues, they will have to increase taxes and. Uh, on the other hand, they will also have to uh, remove subsidies that they give. So the government of Pakistan used to give subsidy on oil and food, like gas and food, basic things that the people of Pakistan need. And when those subsidies are removed, those things become expensive. 
is when all the prices of commodity gas and food will get expensive while people are facing floods. And on the other hand, government will stop spending. There will be less jobs. So it will, it will be very bad for the government. We are seeing the effect of it right now. People are protesting again and again. Uh, when the prime minister of Pakistan went to visit some of these flood victims, there were people protesting outside. So instead of, uh, instead of dealing with those protesters, uh, Pakistani government filed uh, FIRs against them, basically, large police reports against them. And these were terrorism charges that they filed against them. So the Pakistani government is woefully lacking in the, in the ideas to deal with this situation. Instead of, uh, instead of understanding what they have to do, they're uh, trying to, um, you know, oppress people instead. So these things will get compounded more and more as, uh, you know, Pakistan uh, stays in the IMF program, things keep getting expensive, There's, uh, people start protesting and the government responds instead of uh, understanding the problems of the people, government responds by uh, crackdown on free speech. So uh, I don't see things looking very good for Pakistan. This has been a very bad year for Pakistan. On top of this, all floods, uh, right now, the second order of, uh, order of floods will take effect. Right now, if Pakistan is just flooded, right? Four months down the line, we will see the effect of floods in the, in the uh, form of increased food prices because the farmlands have been destroyed. So when that happens, food prices goes up, uh, oil subsidies have been removed because of IMF, people will not be able to afford basic necessities of life. So poverty will definitely increase in Pakistan and GDP will definitely decrease in Pakistan over the next year. Yeah, and you mentioned how poverty is likely to increase inside the country, Walkers, and uh, that definitely makes me wonder about the class uh, implications of um, how the impacts of this flooding are playing out. And, and I've even seen uh, videos of uh, uh, wealthy uh, sectors of Pakistan, you know, almost uh, portraying themselves as if they're like, you know, saving uh, the poor elements from the flood and things like this. But, you know, well, what is the, the reality uh, of that in terms terms of who stands to face the most consequences uh, from this uh, climate issue? Sean, the poorest of Pakistan are the most vulnerable people in the world. See, uh, Pakistan is extremely vulnerable. Like I said, there are 7,000 glaciers in Pakistan. They are, they are melting very fast. And when those glaciers melt, floods will come. When floods come, they come to, to poor people who, ha- who do not even have uh, very strong, how their houses made of clay and earth. So they get uh, flooded really fast and they, they get destroyed immediately with the first wave of floods. These people are the most vulnerable. But the thing is, Pakistan does not contribute uh, to the global carbon emissions. Like Pakistani contribution is 1%. Yet these, these poor Pakistani people are vulnerable to it. Rich Pakistanis are safe from it. And the Pakistani elite, especially Pakistani political elite, has not cared about poor Pakistanis in 70 years. So now we see a situation in which poor Pakistanis are dying and the elite is so disconnected that they do not even understand how to help them. We've been seeing 
Pakistani members of the parliament who are extremely rich feudal from the feudal Pakistani class. They have huge land owning. They are going to their constituency to help ostensibly to help the their uh, their subjects that they have as feudal landlords. So and we have seen videos of them sitting in a very in front of in front of their thrones in a very condescending way while the rest of them, the flood victims, sit on the floor in front of them. And there was another video in which this guy is washing his feet with uh, with mineral water, like bottled water, while these flood victims uh, do not even have water to drink while their houses are being drowned. There was another Pakistani minister who has recently been caught, been caught on video that Pakistan now looks like Venice so people should, instead of suffering, they should enjoy it because Venice is such a beautiful city. He, he says that he has been to Venice and Venice is such a nice city. So people should enjoy it, that Pakistan now looks like Venice. So these are the disgusting things that we are seeing from the Pakistani political elite while the Pakistani poor drown. And the rest of the world will obviously not care that these are the consequences the Pakistani poor are facing for the for the developed countries whose carbon emissions are are so much that they're causing, uh, they're, they're wrecking this havoc in underdeveloped world and in countries like Pakistan. Uh, there should be climate reparation. Like England, since the industrial revolution has been polluting the atmosphere and those consequences are now coming back to Pakistan, while England would take no responsibility for its actions. So, uh, and some of these rich countries have given some aid to Pakistan, but it's it's very small. And on the other hand, similarly, how the rich countries treat poor countries, Pakistani rich elite, with the same colonial mindset, with the same imperial mindset, treat the poor in their, in their own country. So they have funding that they would not, they, they would not let, they were not allowed to reach to the uh, poor people. Either they would just, uh, you know, steal that money, or they would be so inefficient or income competent that the poor people would not see the benefits of it. Of it. So uh, what I see in Pakistan is that we people are trying to. Uh, rise up to all of this and they're trying to fix the politics of all of this so that the governance can get fixed so that when the next flood comes they don't have to die like this yeah, I mean, what you're describing is really unconscionable in terms of how these are ruling class elements in Pakistan are sort of reacting to this, uh, Waukes. And you're so right when you talk about the climate reparations piece and uh, like the emissions question on Pakistan, I think is true for much of uh, what we call the global south. These countries that contribute very little to the climate crisis, but suffer the most uh, consequences. And I want to uh, hit on something that you just mentioned a moment ago in terms of how uh, uh, these uh, former these imperial and colonial powers like, uh, uh, you know, Western Europe and the United States and places uh, like this about how they 
they maintain this uh, uh, basic colonial kind of mindset as it pertains to countries like Pakistan and how it impacts the people there on the ground in so many ways. And I was hoping you could say more about how that orientation of these uh, uh, nations uh, can impact uh, the people there, sort of further exacerbating uh, this crisis. Yeah, sure, it's really simple. We think about this in a very complicated way, but it is really simple. You know, if Pakistan has had a truly democratic government, if Pakistan really had a representative of their people, they would, that representative, that, that leader would ask the West to pay the, uh, to pay the reparation for not just climate change, but also colonialism. There is so much real money that the West owes to, to the, what we call the global South. But to, to, to ensure that no leader exists to ask this question, the global North also ensures that no proper leader comes to the top. So no one who is able to question the West would, would be in charge of, of, of these countries. So these are two related things. They do not want to pay these reparations. That is why they do not want Pakistan to be a democrat and like much of the global south to be democratic countries. They want dictators in the Middle East. They want like these uh, 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 military and uh, civil dictators in Africa so that nobody asks the West to pay up. It is like a small investment. West does some invest, investment to prop up these regimes. Right now, Pakistan has been given by the U.S. $10 million so that like, it's aid for, uh, for the floods, right? And this aid for the floods will be used by the Pakistani rural, rural elite to give some money to their henchmen, to their means, so that there is no popular uprising. Or if there is any popular uprising, that can be quashed simply. So the colonialism really hasn't ended. The West rules the global house via these henchmen, via these dictators, via these uh, uh, feudals like in Pakistan. And they continue to oppress their people so that Pakistan never gets these reparations that they, they deserve. And much of the global south like, does not get these reparations, not just for colonialism, but also for climate change. Yeah, definitely. And you know what you're describing, Wakas, is a reality that a lot of people in the United States and in the West are just uh, completely oblivious to because it's not um, highlighted or uh, uh, really pointed out either uh, from our government or in the mainstream press. Certainly they're covering the flood, but these deeper class implications and the connections to imperialism and the history of colonialism are, of course, left out because to do that uh, would only point the finger in the direction of the real culprits of this suffering. Well, we thank you so much, Walkers, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome.
welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about ongoing far-right attacks against the transgender community. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Archukina. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Morgan, you recently published uh, uh, an article with Liberation News entitled The Far Right Aims to Eliminate Trans People, But the Working Class is Fighting Back. And you lay out a a number of ways that these far right attacks are uh, uh, sort of unfolding in a number of ways. And one way is through this (laughs) what's called, I think, absurdly, the Protect Children's Innocent Act uh, introduced. I believe, by a representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Trumpist uh, official, which, to my understanding, would basically make it a felony to provide transgender children with gender affirming medical care. And uh, and this is under penalty of both prison time and uh, a hefty fine. And we've talked a little bit about this act here on uh, uh, the show, Morgan. And what's interesting to me is how uh, if we look at the makeup of Congress, right, it doesn't seem terribly likely that this bill will actually pass. So why then would Green put up such a piece? I mean, it just kind of feels like red meat to uh, uh, her reactionary base. Well, I think it is partly that, you know, she is she is certainly somebody who is happy to introduce things like I think I don't know how many motions to impeach Biden she has introduced now, you know, like so there is a certain amount of like she kind of just, you know, is would introduce that. But um, I think the the really dangerous thing is not so much that a fringe person like Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks that or desires that or would even introduce a bill that might get that will never get traction so much as that it is actually becoming more representative of um, attacks against trans people and uh, and the 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 direction that the more mainstream parts of the GOP uh, are heading, and so maybe today her this bill doesn't get any traction, but it's certain. Um, well, she has at least I think ten, twelve co-sponsors to it already. So it's, she's not totally isolated in thinking this, but it's also it's also one. It's it's a really heinous you know attack um, to even suggest you know such a thing. Uh, in 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 Congress in a nationwide way, um, but also like I said, like there are these other attacks in Florida, in Texas, and um, and across the country that kind of hint that like this is kind of the direction that that these people want to take things, and and so it could become a rallying point for something more dangerous. Yeah, I was hoping you could say more about what this has been looking like in Florida and Texas. Yeah, so in in Florida, um, you have a, a uh, well in both states you have a Republican governor and a Re- Republican controlled legislature, uh, and and two governors who have really kind of like you said kind of thrown red meat to their base to really kind of stay in power, whip up support for 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 Trump or for Trump like policies. You know, during the pandemic, both were also very kind of like you know proudly anti mask, anti vax. We're standing up to the government and like that's all red meat too and that's kind of what these people do to to stay in power basically um sadly what it does is it is it conditions their base 
to become accepting uh, of these policies, particularly when they whip up a kind of moral outrage about them. And that's what all, that's what's was what's really grounded both of these. Uh, both of their their trends uh, in these states against trans people. So in Florida, you have everybody knows about like the don't say gay law and all that stuff, and we've talked about that. Um, but there's much more to it now that it's actually being implemented, and school districts are kind of interpreting it, you know, uh, liberally to use a phrase, um, you know, to mean that uh, you know it to 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 widen you know the bands uh, on on what people can say and do and talk about. Uh, in school or teach to 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 be kind of as 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 encompassing as possible, ban as much as possible. Um, and you also have in Florida, for example, um, they recently introduced new rules that uh, ban Medicaid from covering uh, trans related procedures for adults and for children. Um, and so that you know immediately means that nine thousand trans people in Florida are losing their only access to medical care, to hormone therapy, uh, to you know these drugs can cost a lot of money. It also includes just the appointments, you know, to to get checkups on these things. You have to have regular checkups and blood tests and all of that stuff too. And you know, even independent from surgeries that people may require, facial feminization or or um, you know, gender affirmation surgery or whatever whatever, you know, you may you may require for that. Uh, so that's you know, obviously a huge danger because it, it's one, there are 10 other states that do that too. Tech, uh, uh, Florida's just the most recent, but also it's a signal to private insurance companies uh, to to like begin to think about maybe they don't want to cover this stuff either because the Florida Medical Board considers these procedures to be experimental, which is they're not. These there's a half century plus of 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 all of this stuff being done and prescribed, and everybody knows how it works. It's not a mystery. So they've they've kind of taken just invented their own facts in that way. And then in Texas, you know, in a, just like in Florida, you have these attacks against trans athletes, against trans youth, and uh, and all this other stuff, uh, and their own kind of version of a don't say gay similar type of thing. They also have uh, both states also have laws rolled into like an anti-critical race theory thing that also seeks to ban teaching about LGBTQ topics. But in Texas, especially, you have this really heinous, borderline genocidal um, order by Abbott's government, Governor Abbott's government. Uh, to for these child st- uh, protective services uh, to investigate parents of trans kids who give their kids, you know, gender affirming uh, care, uh, and and they've they've arbitrarily and you know, contra legislatively defined this as child abuse, and are now and 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 are now investigating children. Uh, parents for that. And the result of that is trans kids being taken from their parents and placed in foster homes or with other families where they will not have their gender identity affirmed, where they will be forced to live and exist as their gender they were assigned at birth. This is suppression of, of an of the identity of a group of people. This is this is this is destruction of of a people. You know, um, as I talk about in the article, uh, the what what they're doing in Texas meets certain parts of the UN's definition of genocide in the Genocide Convention in 1948. Uh, so it's 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 very very dangerous, and uh, the courts have really not wanted to. It's been fought out in courts, and they haven't really wanted to stop it so much as just uh, limit you know the way that it can happen in some ways. But um, it's really dangerous. These are very populous 
states. They're very influential states. And just like we saw with anti-abortion stuff, just like we saw with, you know, mask mandates, vaccine, whatever, their influence can have a wide, in, you know, they can have a wide influence across much of the country and what other states will consider doing and what they consider to be politically possible. Yeah. And as you note in your uh, piece, when you talk about how a lot of this would basically force transgender youth to detransition, which I have to imagine would have an immense physical, mental, and emotional toll on these young people. And so that makes me wonder then, Morgan, why all this focus on transgender children? Because th th this legislation and all these sorts of things that we're seeing in these different states you know, are, are being posed in a way seemingly like they're doing it to protect children or to try to keep children from being abused or things like that. But as you're laying out, the act of doing this is in effect deeply abusive in a number of ways. And so, I mean, what do you what is sort of the these far right elements? What are they really angling for and trying to focus on children in particular, you think? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is just it's easy to generate a moral outrage about children. You know, like save the children, the precious children, whatever. Um, I think it also has to do with a lot of the anti-trans stuff is very deeply wedded to white supremacy. And white supremacy is all about, you know, protecting the, 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 the little white babies and stuff and make sure that they can go on to produce more little white babies eventually. Uh, and so there's a moral outrage factor about that, too. But I think that there is also an attempt to really limit the number of trans people who are able to exist out in the world. You know, um, I don't think that visibility is is the end all be all, you know, to trans politics. But um, and I think maybe there has been an overemphasis on that uh, in in the cultural sphere. But at the same time, it's also been really good. You know what they want is they don't want because trans children are going to exist, whether you repress their identities or you affirm them. The difference is just how long it takes them to kind of figure it out, you know? And so I think there's an idea that if you can isolate children from this, don't let them know that trans exists so they don't or, or gay for that matter or, or lesbian or whatever. So they go through life. Not and I know this because I didn't figure this stuff out when I was a kid, you know, and uh, and I just went through life, you know, thinking that I was something wrong with me, that I was just broken, you know, or or not understanding and just kind of just just trying to, you know, muddle through life until I found out, you know, I met trans people and I found out what that meant and what the, and, and realized what this had, you know, if I had known when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I, I could have said that I was a girl then. You know, but I didn't know what those feelings meant. And I think that part of their goal is to stop that from happening so that people won't be able to transition. The more, less of them will want to transition, less of them will then be able to transition for various reasons when they become adults. And also because they just want less trans people. We know that um, trans children, when they don't receive affirming care, when they don't receive affirming like social, you know, interaction around them, that their uh, that their suicide rate is astronomical. It's over fifty percent before the age of eighteen. It's yeah, and and so it's and 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 when when the Texas order came down back in February that they were going to begin seizing trans kids like this, there was a wave of suicides and suicide attempts of trans kids across Texas. There was one example of a trans boy who attempted suicide the day that the order came down, then was taken to the hospital. He he his his attempt failed. He was taken to the hospital. The hospital he was 15. The hospital found out he was on on hormone therapy uh, and then reported his parents to 
uh, the Child Protective Services, according to the new order, then he got investigated. So it's like everything that he feared was validated. And so I think that they're also it, it, a part of it is they know that and they just want there to be less trans people in the world. And uh, and that's what these policies are going to accomplish. They're going to result in children dying. Yeah, I mean, what what you're describing, Morgan, is really a, a nightmare scenario in a lot of ways. And these attacks are, uh, are also happening at different levels. I mean, there reportedly have also been coordinated threats against uh, hospitals. So, so what has that looked like and what are sort of the dangers inherent there? Yeah, so this is, um, I think we've talked about this before, about how like there's been this kind of uh, far right uh, coordinated hate and harassment campaign on social media where they will, um, they'll go after, they're, they, again, it just kind of works in this moral outrage machine and, uh, and they target, they've targeted like drag events, you know, drag queen story hour, stuff like that, um, drag bars. Uh, and then more recently, yeah, they've attacked like uh, Boston Children's Hospital uh, and uh, Children's National Hospital here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and some other clinics too, claiming uh, falsely or mischaracterizing something, claiming that like, well, for example, what they claimed about Children's National Hospital was that they were doing like giving out hysterectomies to trans kids, you know, basically on demand, you know, and kind of whip again, whipping people up into this moral outrage. And then so these places get death threats. They get, you know, threats of attacks against them, which, you know, results in a demonization of them. And also in, you know, they have to beef up security. There's the psychological factor. You know, it's very similar, I think, to the harassment of abortion clinics that's been going on for decades, um, which, you know, from there you saw you know, people protesting outside, which the Supreme Court said what they were allowed to do. And then you even had like assassinations of of abortion um, practitioners. You had terrorist bombings of clinics and stuff like that's where this stuff eventually goes. And uh, and so there's a real danger in that. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's this online, you know, hate campaign of whipping this stuff up. And it's not just online. It's become a major part of like Fox News uh, and Newsmax and these other kind of, you know, right wing news outlets, they regularly look to these uh, these kind of big accounts that coordinate this stuff and they amplify it and they put it out there, you know. Uh, so so there, you know, Tucker Carlson has it on his show. I've seen it on, you know, Jesse Waters show and and uh, and, and all this like they just they, they they repeat it and they and they are part of spreading it. And so that leads to millions of people being, you know, hearing this highly distorted, uh, you know, between between highly distorted and outright lies uh, about trans people and the already rare clinics and underfunded and undersupported clinics that support trans health care. Yeah. And I'm also wondering what fight back to this has looked like, Morgan, uh, because my impression is that there hasn't been a ton of resistance to this uh, uh, coming from the Democrats. I mean, indeed, I think in certain ways they may be even actually actively contributing to it. But uh, in terms of how people are heading out to the streets and pushing back against this, even despite this uh, far right campaign, because you're right, I had the same thought about how, you know, with the uh, the anti-abortion elements, I mean, we've seen bombings, people have been killed over this. So we know that this is an element that has a pretty large capacity for violence. And yet and still uh, people fight back. So, so what has that looked like? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's been the really cool thing is that um, the 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 targets of these of these hate campaigns uh, have have 
also seen people come out to defend them, LGBTQ people and uh, and their allies and comrades, you know, who come out to and and usually they far outnumber the right wingers who come out um, to these are like drag. There's been several drag bars across the country and like drag queen story hours at libraries or schools or whatever that um, have, you know, they've they've called out these fascists to 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 uh, you know attack them or seek to disrupt them or whatever uh, and uh, and often what happens is there's like maybe 10 15 of them that show up and there are hundreds of people who come out in defense you know to 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 show support for these LGBTQ institutions uh, under attack and uh, and and to stand up to these you know far right things and so I talk about a couple of them in the article and also about how you know the 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 trans rights and trans liberation movement has been deeply embraced by other struggles. Um, there's uh, there's uh, this one scene uh, that was I think it was the day of the that the Dobbs decision was handed down. It was either the day of or the day after. There were uh, two protest marches in San Francisco: one uh, for abortion rights and uh, one for trans rights. And they combined into one massive, you know, protest of thousands and thousands of people and started chanting, you know, chants of unity, saying, you know, reproductive and trans rights, one struggle, one fight, emphasizing the fact that, you know, our oppression as trans people is tied to the oppression of women and that, you know, we're both fighting for the right to getting the health care that we need. You know, um, I also think about how the... Um, the largest ever protest in defense of trans lives happened during the 2020 uprising, you know? Uh, um, uh, so so that was not a, a, a protest movement or an uprising that was about trans rights. It was about fighting against uh, anti-black racism and police terror and, uh, and, and you know, racist vigilante violence. Um, but the conversation about, you know, the murders of trans women and especially black trans women became a major part of that too. And, you know, 20,000 people rallied in New New York in defense of, of of the lives of black trans women. That's 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 a really powerful statement of solidarity. So that's what we're seeing, and that's what we need to see more of. And uh, if, if we're really going to stand up to these attacks, especially if they're going to be coming out at the federal level, like we're seeing now uh, from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and certainly if the if the Republicans win uh, in the uh, in the November elections, and certainly if Trump or DeSantis or one of these like-minded people gets into the White House in 2024, you know this is only going to continue to trend up in that direction. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Diddy Scene. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's two. 
0252113201320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. Please follow us on social media, twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting the hour live from rumble.com. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Rachel Hugh, organizer and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, Rachel, uh, here recently, U.S. President Joe Biden gave a major speech in the state of Pennsylvania on policing and crime um, as part of his rollout campaign of his, quote, Safer America plan. And, uh, you know, uh, he said during this uh, uh, speech, quote, when it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. And he added saying, I'm tired of not giving them the help they need uh, and saying that he is determined to, quote, give them additional resources they need to get their job done. Now, what do these additional resources look like? Well, it's going to mean thirty seven billion dollars to the police. And this is a part of an effort to, quote, hire and train 100,000 additional police officers. Now, this just seems like uh, uh, another scheme by Biden and his administration to uh, a sort of further uh, distance itself from the movement against racist police terror that was uh, raging here in the streets of the United States uh, just a couple of years ago around the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis that brought millions of people into the street. And I mean, this also stands, uh, I think, in some uh, contradiction and contrast to what Biden was saying on the campaign trail and earlier in his presidency when it seemed like he was at least entertaining the idea of some kind of police reform. I mean, in a speech in June 2020, Biden said, quote, no more excuses, no more delays. It's time to pass legislation that will give true meaning to our constitutional promise of equal protection under the law. And in a, a, a address to Congress in April of last year, he, he talked about the need to, quote, root out systemic racism that plagues American life. And see, you know, if people remember back during that time, back in 2020, Biden was actually positioning himself almost as if uh, uh, he was supportive of the movement in the streets against racist police terror. I seem to remember seeing images of him, you know, in the streets, you know, with the people acting like he was down or whatever. But then in reality, you know, later on, him and Kamala Harris would put out these statements talking about how, you know, while the protests were justified, there was no need to be, quote unquote, violent. In reality, that meaning violence against property. And I mean, I could go on and on uh, about this, uh, 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 Rachel, but particularly the fact that 
Uh, Biden wants to give $37 billion to the police in a time where the poor, working and oppressed people of this country are going without on so many fundamental levels, I think just speaks to the real interest and priorities of the Biden administration. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, especially when you're thinking about the fact that Joe Biden was supposedly what the Democrats had to offer in terms of hope and change in a moment where there were mass uprisings in the streets in 2020. I mean, it's just such a, in some ways, it just takes the mask off of exactly what the Democratic Party is and does. They make fake promises for people in moments when they really, really desperately and profoundly need change and then just essentially don't follow through on those promises. I mean, in some ways, too, we can really see this, this, uh, the fact that Joe Biden feels comfortable as a Democratic president in this time and, and moment to, to, to uh, really call for more police like this is in so many ways indicative of the moment that we're in, in terms of the right wing shift that we've had. I mean, 2021, we saw this major shift to the right. I mean, post January 6th and the growth of the right wing. And just in general, after 2020, the movement went away, went out of the streets. We saw so many people just kind of waiting and hoping on their breath that Joe Biden would be the one to usher in this new era of change for us. And I think it just really speaks to the fact that the Biden administration from the beginning, like you were saying, has no interest whatsoever in carrying out any of the promises of police reform that they had had. And they were solely just campaign promises for the sake of getting into office. And I mean, despite the fact that Biden Biden even actually gave people a significant relief on student loans and student loan debt. But either way, even though they did that, even though he had done that, I feel as though it's really important to look at the fact that his approval rating is still so low. And it's things like this that I think directly contribute to the fact that his approval rating is still so low. He's not listening to what people in this country have been talking about and wanting. I mean, millions of people came into the streets. It was 20% of people in this country, one in five people protested to demand justice for George Floyd. And we can only imagine that there are even more people out there since then who have felt and seen this profound, disgusting ways in which police treat people in this country. And so for Biden to so comfortably say this speaks to me towards this right wing shift that the Democrats don't even feel the need, frankly, to even engage with what the popular sentiment had been at the time and what the popular sentiment still seems to be amongst people. And I'll say this too, just kind of as a final thought here. I mean, we're coming off of the Uvalde police shooting, and I, I, I think it's so easy right now that these shootings, do they come and they go, they come and they go, because unfortunately they happen so often. But we're coming off of the Uvalde police, I mean, not the police shooting, the Uvalde shooting, I kind of had a slip there because I've connected it so much with the inaction of the police. But the Uvalde shooting, the school shooting that happened, the police were completely incapable in any way, shape or form in responding. I mean, the outrageous video that we saw of police in, in numbers, in their SWAT uniforms and all of their gear, you know, getting hand sanitizer, just going over to the wall, casually waiting while children are being murdered in the same building. I mean, there really is no other outrageous way to just be put in front of our faces, the complete ineptitude of policing in America. It, it just really surprises me that we can have that kind of outrage all across the nation at the complete and utter inability of well-equipped, well-trained, well-armed police to do nothing to protect children of all people. And that we're coming off of that with Biden saying something as tone deaf as we need more police. I mean, make the contradiction make sense, Sean. I really just can't. 
Yeah, and shout out to the Miami's Necessary Chat. Gamandi just reminded me that back in 2020, Joe Biden uh, told the police to shoot people in the leg instead of the heart. Like, I, I forgot all about that, but I definitely remember when that happened. And I feel like that actually sums up a lot of the orientation um, from his administration as it pertains to this issue. He didn't say don't shoot people. He didn't say don't kill people or anything like that. Uh, he said just shoot them somewhere that's potentially less lethal. And I definitely think you're right, Rachel, when you talk about how um, uh, uh, the Biden administration is really using this as a a pandering kind of tool, I I think not the least of which uh, directly to the police themselves as a sector of the electorate, which is also something that I think we've been seeing uh, playing out throughout his uh, presidency thus far. I mean, you know, in the early months of uh, uh, his presidency, there was a Uh, You know, there were negotiations that were actually happening in Congress over some kind of uh, police reform bill. But this basically uh, fizzled out because there was no real uh, energy or fight that was put into actually making it a a reality. And one of the most significant things that were being considered during that time was ending qualified immunity, which is, of course, this just incredible legal protection that police get to enjoy when they brutalize and kill people, basically a legal impunity that the police are able to have when they engage in this brutality and these extra uh, uh, judicial killings. But that was one of the first things that the Democrats bargained away. They are always giving these sorts of things away for basically uh, nothing in return. And it all ended up being for nothing, really, because those uh, negotiations uh, basically broke down entirely about a year ago. And, you know, it's just clear that it's one of these things that um, and one of many that I think we could point to where the Biden White House um, pretends to be taking up an issue, whether it's police terror, whether it's uh, abortions or things like that, whether it's a voter suppression. I mean, the list goes on about things that they proclaim that they will fight for and then just don't and kind of let them uh, fall by uh, the wayside and then wonder why they have to, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, continue to try to beg for uh, people's voter support as we head towards uh, the midterms in 20. 2024. And, you know, another thing that I wanted to highlight uh, about this is about this this really uh, arbitrary argument that is implicit in Biden's whole presentation about uh, uh, policing here is that, you know, the, the call to defund the police, positioning that as being contrary and contradictory to public safety. And that's false. That, that That's a false dichotomy, if you will. We can defund the police and have public safety. The only way that those things could be in contradictions is as if we say that the police are a core aspect of public safety and that we can't have public safety without the police. And indeed, that is, I think, the uh, uh, consciousness both of uh, the ruling class and of uh, a lot of people in the United States because of this messaging of propaganda that we get from this government and uh, their stenographers in the mainstream media. And so, you know, I think that's why it's it's incumbent upon us, uh, Rachel, as organizers, 
and as movement people to really promote and advocate for a different kind of uh, a political imagination and to have enough imagination to be able to say is that actually police are not integral to public safety. And we can tell that right here, right now, by the fact that they don't keep us safe and that despite uh, rising rates of uh, violent crime and things like that also connect to the contradictions of capitalism, um, uh, they keep uh, these numbers keep going up and we keep giving more money to the police and increasing numbers uh, of the police. But yet we don't see any uh, uh, sort of positive impact. I mean, here in D.C., uh, we're seeing an uptick of shootings in areas where we typically wouldn't see them. And we're one of the most, if not the most policed uh, cities in the United States. And so it's just clear that uh, this is really a ruling class effort on the one hand to not only take more resources away from poor working people in this country, but also strengthening the state's mechanisms for violence. And I feel like we really have to pay attention to that uh, dynamic, Rachel, as it could have some serious implications for the near future. No, certainly, Sean. And I mean, it is such a myth that more police is going to equal less crime in any way, shape and form. I mean, if we really took that to the logical conclusion, I mean, we have over 900,000 police officers in the United States. And if that was the case, we would be one of the safest countries on the planet. And I can just tell you anecdotally from recently being in Cuba and even being in Turkey as well, other countries and other parts of the world just walking around as a woman, even at night, I feel a thousand times safer. And I mean, that is very real. Anyone who's moved here from outside of the U.S. and moves to the U.S., one of those things that they start to really realize is the kind of tension that you carry with you of both the fear of the police and just the general fear that you get here of the idea of crime. And it's just completely different around the world. And so the idea that the U.S. in any way, shape or form is safer because of the number of police we have is just false. And so I think it does speak to what you're saying about this kind of deluge of propaganda that happens every single day for people in the U.S. And I do want to reframe some of those mainstream media headlines, because I think you see headlines, especially in New York City, this is a big thing that's been happening because of Eric Adams. I mean, there's just this big call that people supposedly have for more police. But I think if you listen a little bit closer, I I think the call that people want is their anxieties about the historical past of what has happened in New York. I mean, when we're talking about the crack epidemic, we're talking about the 80s, we're talking about deindustrialization and all of, of the challenges that came after that and the way the Bronx was burning. There's a whole history there. But I think what people are really saying when they're calling for more police, if they're actually calling for more police, is that they're really calling to feel safe. And so I think it's really important as people in the movement to connect those dots, that there are other other alternative programs that I think communities would welcome absolutely with open arms that actually work towards safety. I mean, violence interrupter programs is something that I talk about all the time. I know you talk about them too, because they they work. I mean, there's some programs that I just roughly, I, I remember reading some stats that some of these programs that work to bring people who were formerly incarcerated or people that used to be in the streets and used to be in gangs back into communities to help uplift young people and keep them out of trouble and, and give them a sense of community and sense of direction, these programs absolutely work. I mean, I think it was in Colombia, which a country that has one of the most violent histories and one of the, the highest rates of violence in Latin America. I mean, these programs, when they 
were implemented, it cut down in, in certain cities. I think it was a very small city. I got to find the exact name of the city. I don't have it off the top of my head. But they cut significantly gun-based violence down, I think, by 60% or so. So it's not a, you can't quote me on that one, but I know that if you look up any of these stats just on a basic level, that these kinds of programs, they work. They work in Chicago. They work in D.C. They work in New York City. They work everywhere. And yet every single year we see all of these different programs struggle to have funding. This funding gets cut. I mean, if we really care about public safety, we need to approach, first of all, the issue of community violence with actual solutions that work. And I think the other element of this, too, that I always like to talk about in movement spaces as well is like we need community controlled police. I mean, people should have the ability and right to talk about what safety looks like in their communities. Why can't we elect our police officers in our communities? Why can't we decide what safety means in our community? Why is there always an outside force? And it's because if you ask the question why, there is an answer. And it's because the role of the police in the United States are to serve the interest of capital and the interest of corporations. I mean, it's why they protect businesses and they protect banks and they evict individuals as well from their homes. They're really not here to protect us. And I think the Uvalde shooting, I keep bringing it up, but it really needs to stay with us that it's very clear that the police are not here to protect us. Otherwise, they would have. So I, I think public safety is a right. Every single working class person in our society deserves to feel safe. But the question is, how do we get to safety? And we can't get to safety with the current model we have. And we can't get public safety under a capitalist system when the police don't serve the people. We need an entirely different system to get to that point. But there's so much I can say, Sean. Definitely. And I want to note that um, police departments across this country already receive over $200 billion a year in funding. And as we noted, they're set to uh, receive $37 billion more. And, you know, when we talk about what would actually uh, uh, reduce community violence, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, these ruling class leaders claim to want to do so much about. And I just think it's noteworthy that they always want to have the quote unquote solution of giving police more money and increasing their numbers. But there's never sort of a concomitant um, infusion of money or resources into these uh, uh, communities themselves. And to have things as basic as, you know, uh, uh, grocery stores or a quality education in the schools or living wages or adequate um, health care benefits. So many basic things that uh, poor and working communities don't have in the United States, which are directly related to these issues of community violence and crime. But as you point out correctly, uh, uh, Rachel, not only are programs uh, like these um, violence reduction uh, efforts, not only are those defunded, but um, also uh, we see social services in general continually defunded. So it stands to reason that this contributes to the deterioration of the social fabric within these communities, which leads to the kinds of antisocial behaviors that the ruling class tries to stamp out with uh, uh, more police. And of course, we see that it just uh, never works. And, you know, you mentioned a moment earlier, Rachel, about um, Joe Biden's uh, uh, student loan debt um, piece. And we've been talking about that a good bit here on the show. And I'm just wondering, how do you sort of compare that or see that in connection with uh, Joe Biden at the vanguard of the fund, the police movement, if you will, as I like to call it. But it just seems to me that, you know, these two pieces are definitely related in terms of the broader thrust, not only in terms of this administration, but of the class that it represents. 
Yeah, I mean, I just think Joe Biden saying I'm tired of police not getting the help they need in some ways just speaks so just volumes to me. I mean, I'm just stunned he's never said I'm tired of the fact that everyday people are carrying with them debt burdens uh, of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, it's just it's just disgusting in some ways to me that we have this advocacy of we need to give police more money as if they aren't literally the highest funded body in the United States. I mean, we have the most well-funded police outfits in the United States, the most well-funded police departments really over any other country. It's like the NYPD has more funding than some countries' actual military budgets. So it just doesn't make any sense to me. And thinking about kind of the student debt component of this, it's in so many ways, it's like Biden also campaigned on relieving student debt. And so I can't say, and I, I can say personally, I'm very, very happy about getting some of this, this burden lifted off of my shoulders. I still have $20,000 of debt. After the 10000 like most people, I mean, the average debt amount is like $33,000 for the average student loan borrower. But I mean, it's it's a huge thing. But I, I can't help but feel that it's a little bit of a sharp contrast when we're looking at the aid that's given to Ukraine the, that really is ultimately going to the military. It's not even going to aid individual people. I mean, billions of dollars is going to aid the military. I mean, there's even crazy stories where apparently they're sending over bullets that don't even go to the guns that are actually there. I mean, it's like chaotic and it's clearly just defense contractors trying to cash in on a gold rush in so many different ways. But there's a sharp contradiction where you see Biden has all of this money for the police, has all of this money for war abroad, but there really is not enough to really, I guess, relieve everybody's student debt. I mean, I'm not going to complain. I'm very happy to get something. And I think it's it's good to see some level of promise carried out. But I do think it is very real that Joe Biden could have done so much more with a literally a flick of a pen. I mean, it's an executive order that the Debt Collective actually wrote. They, they wrote out the exact executive order that Joe Biden would need to sign to relieve 100 percent of student debt. And so I think it's both a win for the working class that because we have fought because we have been relentless in our demand to have this debt released from us and because the working class is unionizing and there's a lot of fear in the hearts of the capitalist ruling class, they're starting to see that workers, because the the labor market has shifted in our favor, that things are changing. I, I can't help but feel that all of that is connected to this relief of debt, that we fought for it and Joe Biden could have done more and we have to keep fighting to make that happen. So I think that all of that kind of comes together, that the mythology we have in this country, that there just isn't enough money to service people, to give people what we need, not just student debt relief, but also housing, health care, maternity care. I mean, every single thing that we need in this country could be taken care of. We are in the richest country in the world, and there is absolutely 1,000 percent no need for us to always fall short. But there is a need, I guess, when you're in a capitalist system that cares more about wars abroad and cares more about profit than it cares about people. Definitely. I mean, it really is absurd, you know, for Biden to talk about he's tired of cops not giving the help they need, you know, you know, painting them as victims in a way. But I mean, you know, I mean, that's almost something you would expect to hear from a right winger. But to your point, it's just definitely an example of how far to the right mainstream politics have moved in this country. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. 
to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guides for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by Rachel Hugh. A uh, shout out to Prester John, too, in the By Any Means Necessary chat, who said, Jamaica has an all-black police force, but they are still beholden to economic forces within the society. They, too, serve the wealth class at the expense of Jamaican citizens. I mean, that's definitely a, a, a fact. I mean, we should never forget that, you know, uh, fundamentally, uh, police serve a particular role in capitalist society. And that is to protect the property and interest of that same ruling class. It's as true in uh, the United States as it is in an island nation like Jamaica. But speaking of issues that are facing the working class here in the United States, Rachel, um, People's Dispatch uh, recently published a piece pointing out that uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 3.8 million tenants in this country are likely to be evicted in the next two months. 3.8 million tenants in the next two months. Now, I want to compare that to 2018, where there were only 3.6 million eviction cases filed for the whole year. And I think that's just a real sort of view about how desperate the housing situation has become here in the United States. The Census Bureau also estimated that eight and a half million tenants are behind on their rent as of this month. And this is literally the last day of August. So rent is going to come due tomorrow and eight and a half million people in this country are already uh, uh, behind. Now, add on top of that, the fact that in June of this year, a uh, median rents in the U.S. hit a record high of two thousand dollars per month, two thousand dollars just to live here uh, in the U.S. Uh, renters have seen a rent increase by almost 25 percent uh, since before the coronavirus pandemic, with a 15 percent increase just in the last year. And this is according to uh, Zillow, of course, a real estate marketplace uh, uh, company. And this is coming alongside issues of stagnating wages and high inflation and things like that. I mean, you know, Rachel, the, the working people of this country have just been, you know, waylaid by uh, uh, so many things. And we continue to see how the contradictions of capitalism just continue to assault these uh, uh, basic necessities of life. I mean, earlier in the show, we were talking about the water crisis that's uh, uh, unfolding right now in Jackson, Mississippi. And I mean, they had an event where they were passing out water and they had to turn people away because although they had seven. 700 cases of water to distribute, they ran out in only two hours. And this is based around um, a, a water system that they've known for years has had issues. And it's a similar thing with this housing issue across the country to where this country and its government under administrations, Democratic and Republican, has known for years about all these different housing issues, but has steadfastly refused to do anything about it. So I just think it speaks to uh, the fundamental 
inhumanity of this system. And Rachel, since we see that there's no help coming from this ruling class whose role is to exploit us, then that effort to change the housing situation and so many other problems in this country is for the struggling people of this country to organize and fight back. Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, we're seeing also just this this spark in energy across the country of people just spontaneously talking about rent strikes. I mean, it really is incredible to, to me to see so much of that conversation bubbling up. Like, I feel in some ways we're almost back 100 years ago with the same struggle when the communists in Harlem used to take all of the, the furniture that would be removed by police when people were getting evicted right back into the house, right back into the home. I mean, that's what we need to be doing in this movement is, is eviction defense as we see so many people really looking down frankly, the barrel of a gun. I mean, there's no other way to think about it. I mean, you're removing millions of people from their homes with nowhere to go. I mean, in Alaska, and this is a kind of a, a really, it's a story people aren't talking about, but really should be, there is a human rights crisis where all of the homeless shelters, in essence, have been shut down and they have put everybody inside of this mega stadium where pretty much everybody in Alaska, in Anchorage, they're all being put into, not Alaska, the, the state, but Anchorage, the city which is still the most populated area of Alaska, they're putting all of them into this stadium to live. And then the stadium was recently closed. It was closed down. So people, all these families, these children, these individuals were moved from a stadium, which is already abysmal housing conditions, and they were moved to camping grounds. And the winter, of course, is, is, is coming up soon, and we're going to be seeing it getting incredibly cold there. And people are living in outside tents and campgrounds. That's what the state is providing them. I mean, when you say the ruling class does not care, I think it's very important that we just use examples like that and understand understand that the ruling class will allow us to starve and they will allow us to die. I mean, that's the nature of the capitalist system. People there are being attacked by bears. It is Alaska. There's wild animals. They're getting attacked by bears. They're getting, uh, in general, just they're, the police are even shooting people there as well because they, they're keeping law and order now in this outside tent area. Like, it just is mind-boggling. I mean, they're openly okay with creating its own variation of Skid Row, which is a whole nother thing to talk about and think about in one of the richest cities in the world in Los Angeles. I mean, you have blocks and blocks and blocks of homeless people who, they, you know, if you wake up, I think it's at seven in the morning, if you wake up at seven in the morning and you go to Skid Row, people are, are, are waking up every single day to go to work. I mean, that is a situation that people are put in in this country. It is people are getting paid stagnant wages that absolutely do not cover a housing crisis that is expanding because of capitalist greed. But I wanted to make this point too, Sean, and, and kind of bring this in here just as a historical note. And I think it's kind of important. I think in the American mindset and the American ethos or, or mythology in a way, we have this belief that there, that the idea that we could all widespread own our own homes, it is such a dream that is sold to people and that renting is meant to be temporary in our lives and we're supposed to eventually somehow have enough money to own. And most people listening to this know that's absolutely never going to be the case for their lives. But it's actually kind of interesting because that idea of home ownership, that came about in the early 20th century. It wasn't something that was accepted or standardized or really the norm. I mean, people rented for so much uh, of this kind of modern era that we live in. Renting was the expectation. And it wasn't until actually 1917 in particular 
when the Federal Department of Labor promoted this idea of own your own home campaign, where they started handing out all these buttons to different school children and families and parents, distributing pamphlets saying that it was a patriotic duty to cease renting and to build single family units. And this was, of course, only to white families in the United States. But I think it's really important to name this because this whole effort to have people own their own homes, white people particularly, to own their own homes, happened because in 1917, the Russian Revolution absolutely scared the Wilson administration straight to take steps to create a different kind of working class that would help give them a buffer between the raw power of the working class and the ruling class. And so it is something I think is that it's important to come into this conversation because the capitalist class is trying to bring us right back to where we historically always were, which is the working class rents and the ruling class owns. And so it's not surprising to me that there's no interest in reversing this trend. It, it was in so many ways an experiment by the ruling class to stop the, the spread of socialism and to create a new consciousness in this country. And without the Soviet Union, without this major threat of the social, the, the fear of socialism from the ruling class, we do see them allow this kind of backslide. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you raising that, Rachel, about how the specter of uh, uh, socialism in the Soviet Union and that threat of a good example absolutely had to be countered by the ruling class in the United States, which is also a big part of the reason of why anti-communism uh, had to become almost like an unofficial religion in this country. I mean, that just absolutely courses through uh, uh, so many elements within this country. And, you know, Another uh, uh, sort of aspect of this housing issue um, is uh, the the real uh, housing shortage. And I'm talking about the, the, the shortage of affordable housing. And the reason why I sort of qualify it in that way, when we talk about a quote unquote shortage, I mean, according to the uh, 2020 census, nearly one in 10 homes in the United States is vacant, like right now. You know what I mean? And so the real shortage are of homes that are both uh, 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 set at a price that poor and working people can actually afford and places that at the same time are suitable for uh, human occupation. And that may sound like, you know, kind of a given, but there are a lot of people actively paying for housing in this country right now that isn't suitable. Uh, you know what I mean? And so there's a lot of uh, a sort of slumlord type of activity that goes on here that by and large, uh, goes completely unpunished. Now, in excuse me, in January 2019, this is three years ago. In 2019, the U.S. already had a shortage of seven million affordable housing units that were designed for low-income renters, which left only 37 affordable renter homes for every 100 low-income tenant households. And so here again, we're looking at a situation where um, uh, this government has for some time known about uh, the situation with housing and has chosen to do nothing with it, similar with uh, uh, this wage crisis. Uh, according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, um, uh, the wage that a worker must earn, and I'm quoting now from the article, the wage a worker must earn to afford a modest, quote unquote, one bedroom home in 2022 is $21.25. 
This would mean that the average minimum age worker would have to work 79 hours a week to be able to live in a one-bedroom unit, just a one-bedroom unit. You know what I mean? And so this is just, you know, the uh, 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 crisis situation that poor working people in the country are in in the United States on a, a, a number of levels. And I mean, I gave that number of 79 hours per week when we talk about the more expensive and popular states uh, uh, like uh, uh, New York and California, that would mean 99 hours per week that people would have to work in New York in 83 in California. And so this country is literally putting poor and working people in a situation where they basically have to work themselves to death just to be able to afford rent. We're not even talking about utilities or food or healthcare bills or cell phone bills or any of those other essential things. And so what we're talking about, Rachel, is a system that literally makes it near impossible just to live and just to function. And so what other conclusion can we come to than to say that this current capitalist system is the culprit and the author of so much suffering that we see in this country and that around the world. And as such, capitalism must fall. And there has to be a new system, a human-centered system, that will speak to these needs directly and adequately and in the way that uh, uh, people need so uh, that these things can actually move forward and carry through. And as we like to say here on By Any Means Necessary, uh, uh, Rachel, it's clear that there will either be socialism or there will be societal collapse. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I could not agree more. I mean, the fact is, is that minimum wage when it was first implemented was about actually giving people a living wage. I mean, the idea of minimum wage is in some ways a misnomer when it was fought for, of course, by the early socialists of the early 20th century. I mean, they were fighting for the concept of a living wage. And so the living wage never prevailed, never kept up with everything else that was shifting and changing. Of course, we're in a moment of inflation. So there's so many other levels of, of how as things get worse, what? how much further does our dollar even stretch? And so I think it's very important that we bring that to the forefront, that if we're even fighting right now in places like New York or California for a living wage, I mean, we're really talking like $44 an hour. I mean, we're talking a lot of money. We're not talking about fight for 15 anymore. It's so out pace. I mean, the idea that we need $15 an hour is outpaced with what we actually need to live. And you're so right that we need socialism. I mean, I was recently in Cuba and it's just changed everything that I think about housing because everyone in Cuba has a place to live. And, it, you know, the thing about Cuba is it's a historically colonized nation. It has less development than the United States. I mean, in the U.S., we have something like 22 empty homes for every homeless person. I think that number has actually gone up. That was from around the housing crisis. I think it was around 2009 that that number is coming from. And so we see the bank own homes after homes after homes, just collecting homes that are collecting dust. I mean, we have space for people to live. We just refuse to put, we refuse to give it to them because of profit incentive solely and only. And so 
I think you're so right in thinking about socialism as a solution because there is not only the issue of the fact that we need housing, but the other issue too, and this is something that Cuba just blew me away with, is that as we think about climate crisis continuing in places, especially like New Orleans, which are like geographically built in such a way that they're going to be prone to flooding and eventually the sea level will come in on them. It will be very difficult for them to, to continue to build up a city that is essentially a bowl. I mean, there is no centralized planning for how we're going to take people from where they are now to where they need to be to be safe. I mean, in Cuba, they have and they've been working on it. And of course, it's very hard to move people. It's very sentimental where you live and where you grew up and where your family is. But they have Pro, like whole processes in place to talk about moving people out of hurricane paths, long-term planning to think about how to keep people out of environmental destruction zones. I mean, and rebuild them homes in places where they can actually live and be free of the, the fear of the environment that's coming, the environmental change that's coming. And so to think about how capitalism is an inept system on every single level, it prioritizes profit over our lives, allowing houses to degrade and decay because the bank wants to own them instead of individuals owning them while people sleep on the streets. I mean, what a horrible contradiction, but not to mention the fact that in the in the grand scheme of the great challenges of the 21st century, the, the environment being a major challenge of the 21st century, capitalism has absolutely no solution because what are you going to do in a, a profit-driven market? How are you going to, to be able to keep people safe and out of harm's way in terms of environmental change if you are solely driven by profit? I mean, it is absolutely scary to think about the implications of that in the future. And absolutely, we need socialism. And it's not impossible. It can be fought for. It was fought for and it was won. And other parts of the world and people in this country fought for it as well and continue to fight for it today. There are individuals all across the country fighting for socialism. There are organizations like the Party for Socialism and Liberation that are, are building socialist parties right here in the United States, alongside many others as well who are fighting for socialist ideas, legislation, and platforms. I mean, we, we don't need to just be all doom and gloom that things are getting worse and there's nothing we can do. In some ways, there's a lot we can do and we only, we all we can do is try to do something, whether it's a union at your workplace, whether it's a tenants union at your housing unit, wherever it might be, there's somewhere to start and we can at least start locally. Absolutely. And I really appreciate how you you uh, warn us against doom and gloom, Rachel. That's definitely something that we try to emphasize here on the show because because of these conditions, it's very, very easy to slip into despair in that way. I mean, it's definitely understandable how people find themselves in that place uh, demobilized uh, emotionally, mentally, and feeling like there's nothing that they uh, uh, can do uh, to really affect their situation. And that's something that this system does. It, it robs you of uh, agency, if I'm using that word correctly. It robs you of this feeling that you can be an active participant in your future and taking your future and your own self-determination into your own hands. And this, I think, is the importance of, uh, of revolutionary optimism and understanding that as bad as things get, we can always fight back. We can always strike in different ways at this ruling class and at this system, which is uh, uh, bedeviling all of us and that we cannot, cannot, cannot uh, concede defeat before we've even begun to fight. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Rachel Hugh is here as we continue. And, you know, we've been talking a lot this hour, Rachel, about different issues facing the, the, the struggling people here in the United States. And um, a lot of these problems are actually exacerbated by the fact that it's like an interlocking network of uh, issues that go unaddressed and then get worse all the time. Time before it basically implodes and the smithereens of that. I mean, I don't know if uh, you know implosion has smithereens, but you all know what I mean. Um, fall squarely on the heads of poor, working and oppressed people in this country. And another one of these issues I wanted to highlight is that uh, a COVID-19, the way that this capitalist uh, system completely bungled uh, the uh, response to the coronavirus pandemic has been a big part of how the life expectancy in the United States has actually dropped off. And it's fell in the United States for a second year straight, according to a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, of course, the CDC. And this was a pretty uh, steep decline, too. I mean, it's down uh, 2.7 years between 2019 and 2021. And so in 2021... Life expectancy in this country was 76.1 years, which is down from 77 years in 2020 and 78.8 in 2019. And so now life expectancy in the U.S. is back to the level that it was in in 1996 and COVID-19 by far is the biggest factor in this dropping off of life expectancy, along with other factors, including heart disease and uh, uh, overdose deaths. Now, uh, Tom Boilke, I might be saying his name wrong, who's the director of the Global Health Program at the, the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, who we're not in the custom of generally quoting on the show, but he said, quote, we have reversed 26 years of health progress in the U.S. with average life expectancy now falling to levels not seen since 1996. And so, you know, I mean, what we're seeing here, I think clearly, Rachel, is uh, the logical conclusion and the results of uh, this ruling class throwing us completely under the bus as it pertains to the COVID-19 pandemic and choosing the interest of capital and profit over people's actual health. And it's something that uh, I think not only are we dealing with now, but will continue to deal with for years to come. And we were just talking about the importance of fighting for a socialist system here in the United States. And then when you look at the strides that socialist countries like uh, China and Cuba uh, uh, that had, I think, something like five uh, vaccines uh, for the coronavirus pandemic. Of course, they didn't have enough syringes because of the brutal criminal U.S. blockade. I mean, it 
really is a tale of two systems in the way that this pandemic um, has played out and will continue to play out. And even though we're all told that this is the greatest system that there can ever be, um, the proof is in the pudding and the result is really piling up in terms of people's lives. You know what I mean? I definitely know exactly what you mean, Sean. I think that when we're talking about this issue, I mean, it just really kills me to think that life expectancy has really gone back. I mean, it's really just been rolled back so significantly because of COVID and no one's really talking about COVID anymore. I mean, COVID and the impacts of COVID, I mean, they are talking about COVID, but I just feel like there's such, there's such a desire by everyday people, myself included amongst many other people, to just want to find a way to move forward. I mean, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic and the numbers in the U.S. are still abysmal and it's insane. But to to speak to this, I, I really feel like the COVID situation in the United States, I mean, the, the impact is a, across all elements of our society, both the job market and inflation, everything we're seeing in relationship to that, as well as just the, what you're talking about with this life expectancy decline. And the fact that so many people are potentially going to have long-term health consequences that the, the healthcare system is without a doubt not prepared to handle. And whether or not we even know if there's even going to be the kind of widespread access to the kind of health care that we need in order to combat God knows what in relationship to long-term consequences of COVID. I mean, all across the board, we've seen our society profoundly affected by this. And so I think that it's really important that you bring this out here in terms of this life expectancy element, because the U.S. is supposedly the greatest country in the world. It's not, but it's the greatest country in the world. It's the richest country in the world. We do know that. And yet, somehow our life expectancy continues to deteriorate. I mean, it just speaks to me to the fact that the capitalist class runs us through the ringer like it's a meat grinder, like they could not care less about our, our lives. And to speak to the healthcare thing as well, and I keep bringing up Cuba, but it really is once you see once you see socialism in a real way, it's hard to not always make it a reference point. And it's, it's not to say Cuba is some utopia. They have a lot of challenges, but primarily, I mean, they're from the blockade. But even so, they still have challenges. But their healthcare system is so focused on preventative medicine that they foresee a lot of these issues. I mean, part of the consultation you have with a doctor in Cuba is you talk about and go through what your family history is to know about the different issues that they need to be looking out for and all the different symptoms you could be getting and how it relates to your family history. And it's not that we don't have family history uh, conversations here in the U.S., but the vast majority of people in the U.S. do not have a primary care doctor. So who's really following that? It's not like you have a local doctor who comes to your house and talks to you about every little symptom that you're worried about. I mean, there really isn't much there on, on that front in this country. So I really think that in some ways, these numbers should be that kind of wake-up call to, to really see the, the decline of Americans' health is, is directly tied to the capitalist system for profit. I mean, there's no other way to think about it. It's kind of insane to me to even think about the fact that drugs cost money and insulin costs money in this country. And I know Joe Biden supposedly is, is they're going to be moving in a direction where, I, I guess, I think it's Medicaid or Medicare, I forget which one it was, I think it's Medicare, who's going to be able to uh, uh, bargain or be able to to fight to lower the price of drugs and be able to do that with pharmaceutical companies. But at the same time, I mean, there's no reason why we can't have just literally health care for all and have 
medications paid for, frankly, by the government. I mean, there's no reason why we can't do that when we have billions of dollars for war. I mean, the fact that we even accept very minute changes in this realm is, is terrifying. I mean, we have the technology in the United States to keep people living well into their 80s, if not their 90s. There's no reason for people to be dying sooner. Definitely. And Nawadi in the By Any Means Necessary chat asked if there was a racial breakdown for these statistics. And there are. Um, I'll quote directly from The Hill that was reporting on this that says, quote, for American Indian and Alaska Native people in particular, the decline over two years was a massive 6.6 years. The decline was about four years for Hispanic people and black people compared to 2.4 years for white people. And uh, frankly, it's unsurprising that um, uh, uh, we see uh, this this decline in life expectancy impact uh, uh, people of color in this way, Rachel, because whenever we talk about the ravages of capitalism, white supremacy is always bound up in that, right? So you talk about these different groups that have uh, uh, historically been uh, uh, super exploited by this system because of uh, uh, the racist nature of capitalism, then that is why whenever we look at these different uh, uh, social issues and developments, uh, the racial question, the racial element to it uh, in tandem with the class element is uh, always so, so crucial. And so what we're looking at when we see these things, I think, is a result of the history of uh, genocide of indigenous people and uh, the enslavement of black people and just the literal centuries of uh, exploitation and displacement and discrimination against uh, all manner of uh, non-white groups here in this country. And so I honestly feel like it connects to so many other things we've discussed this hour. It connects to the housing issue. It connects to uh, uh, the policing issue. It connects to the issues of uh, wages and all these different sorts of things. It's really an inescapable reality that when we talk about capitalist exploitation, that racism is really at the heart of it. And as such, a fight for socialism and a fight against uh, uh, capitalism is a fight against the white supremacy itself. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think especially I want to point this forward too for black women, the maternal death rates. I mean, they're, they're, it's horrifying to think that in the United States, we have such high death rates for black mothers. I mean, it's a very serious issue and it's, it's a very serious issue that's frankly, I think, only going to get worse. So I, I fully agree with you in every way, shape and form, Sean, that we absolutely need to, to talk about and connect and especially in the question of health, the disparities amongst like race. I mean, it's so important and talking about how much we must dismantle racism as part of dismantling capitalism. I mean, the health disparities can be seen across the board, whether it's language access is another major issue for Spanish speakers, as well as anyone who doesn't speak English. I mean, it's really hard to translate for your family members, very complicated medical healthcare questions. And it's not fair to ask people to, to hold that guilt in so many ways of I maybe I translated wrong and I didn't give my father the right information and therefore his care wasn't what it could have been. And he made an uninformed decision. I mean, that's an insane situation to put anybody into. I mean, that's one element of it. But the other part is the compounded poverty that because of the way that of course, capitalism is racialized. I mean, in the same ways in which racism is just racism and capitalism cannot be separated. They are profoundly and deeply intertwined. I mean, the fact that we have such compounded issues uh, of racism and poverty also speaks to the fact that we see the kind of dis 
the disproportionate treatment in healthcare, let alone all of the implicit bias that's there. And this other bit that I just wanted to touch on quickly that I think is important as we talk about the future in terms of racism and healthcare is that as we see technology develop, I mean, there's a lot of inherent bias in different technology. I mean, facial recognition software is one of them that is not as capable of detecting black faces, Asian faces, like faces that have differences from white faces. They literally can't detect them. And the same goes for different like technology, like when you put your hands underneath the soap dispenser and things like that. I mean, it, it, those things seem small because they're kind of not necessary right now. But what about advancements in medical health and technology that are going to be using these similar types uh, of technologies that could have that component? I mean, we already know right now that when it comes to, for example, crash test dummies in cars, I mean, the crash test dummies are actually literally made for men only. And so women are far more likely to die in car accidents because the testing is made for men. And the same goes for heart issues in women as well. The dosing and heart attacks in general uh, are actually the, the symptoms of heart attacks that we know yeah. about the clutching your chest. Yeah, it's definitely all women. discrimination yeah. at every level. Well, we thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.